Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Much of what the Fed and the Bank of Japan and other central banks, for that matter, want to accomplish is based on the idea of raising inflation. They blame much of the disinflation we're experiencing on the drop in oil prices last year. Now oil prices are falling again, and you have Conoco saying we're going to have more oil coming to market. What's going on? Ed Morris is global head of commodities research for Citigroup. Uh, what is going on? Is this just simply, is this what everybody thought would happen? The price goes up and then we bring more oil to market instead of letting the market clear? Well, actually, on a general global basis, oil from OPEC countries has basically peaked. We don't expect any more coming out of Iraq or Iran this year or next year or the year after. And uh, and we're seeing non-OPEC production sliding the way it should be. People anticipated that the slide would happen last year, but we're, we're projecting that non-OPEC production will be down a good 1,300,000 barrels a day, exit to exit in 2016. Well, what, uh, I know this is Unfair because uh, you haven't seen this. I'm just seeing the headlines come across. But what is Conoco Phillips talking about if well, they're saying more oil is coming to market? They may have more oil coming to market, and uh, that's not unreasonable. Projects take a long time to sanction, and uh, and we've had a postponement of sanctioning. We had uh, about 15 projects sanctioned globally, big ones, uh, two years ago, and this year we're seeing uh, a half a dozen a big projects being sanctioned. This is a slow move of decline, but it's surely coming. And $41.90 WTI doesn't allow for much in the way of supply growth globally. Tom, uh, let me just, I've got the numbers now from Conoco. They're raising their 2016 production view to uh, 1.54 to 1.57 million barrels uh, a day versus the prior view of 1.5 to 1.54. So they're significantly raising, it looks like, uh, Ed, their, their, their numbers for their production. And they're not alone. There are a lot of in U.S. independents that have healthy balance sheets. Then they're in the Permian Basin. And uh, the cost mm-hmm. of production has slid in a bunch of pocketed areas. If you're well positioned, you'll see supply growth. We're thrilled to bring you Edward Morse. For years associated with Princeton University, always looking at the bigger, the larger picture within careful microeconomic analysis of hydrocarbons and, of course, running uh, the commodity shop for Citigroup. Dr. Morse, are we any smarter in our guesstimates at $40 a barrel than we were in our certitude at $100 a barrel? I I think we're a lot better. I think... uh... The debate at 100 was whether it was sustainable. The consensus was that it was going to go up rather than down. That, w- that consensus was wrong, by the way. But the consensus now that a low $40 oil is unsustainable, I think, is a judgment that is very, very difficult to challenge. Certainly at $35, you don't get enough uh, oil coming into the market to meet yeah. expected year in, year out, one point something million barrels a day uh, on the demand side. What are the dollar dynamics with oil. You have the privilege of Stephen Englander to throw things at when it becomes uncorrelated. When you and Dr. Englander sit down, how do you link dollar to oil? Well, we generally link it in the same way. There's been a very strong negative correlation 
that uh, has emerged between uh, not just oil, but all commodities and the U.S. dollar. Uh, the oil link is particularly strong because all of the other commodities, while denominated in the, uh, in the U.S. dollar, uh, they're all energy intensive. So they respond to both the uh, price of oil and the, uh, and the relative value of the dollar. Uh, if this is a world in which we expect a stronger dollar, it's going to weigh on the fundamentals and their impact on prices. Right. So if we get, let's say, a non-brutal, modestly strong dollar, Mike, I'm going to call that consensus, that impinges upon oil's recovery to 50 and 60, right? It impinges on it, but it doesn't stop it because this is a, an environment in which petrostates are failing, in which we've got disruption risk that it's palpable, in which we have, to be sure, a bunch of emergency stocks, but they're politically not really very usable. So the, the big inventories that we have of oil not being produced are in Saudi Arabia on the one hand, uh, and uh, in the U.S., where we have this new swing supplier you get a, a kick up in prices and you get a drilling rebound. You have a whole bunch of wells that have been drilled but not completed. They're not yet fracked. Uh, and uh, and they can come back into the market pretty quickly. You can add four or five or 600,000 barrels a day to supply on a disruption increase uh, and U.S. production will rebound. It'll be the swing supply in the market. I, I don't want to. I think it's kind of silly to say, you know, what's the oil price target because those things move around. But uh, putting it in Fed terms, they they say inflation's going to move back up. It's been low, partly reflecting the declines in oil prices. Is is oil going to move up in price enough to have an impact on inflation would be the way I'd ask. Well, I think the real question is uh, what are the two most traded commodities in the world? And they, they amount to food and fuel. And that's really the heart of inflation, particularly uh, in emerging markets. They've already seen this inflation because as emerging market currencies uh, depreciate against the U.S. dollar, as they have been, the cost of commodities has gone up. So we may be complacent about inflationary uh, issues in uh, advanced economies, but particularly the U.S., but it's really a big issue for emerging markets. And no... Uh, it'll be not as significant an issue as it is now if we really get the shortness of supply, if we get the inventory draw. Uh, I'd say no matter what happens to the U.S. dollar, we'll see uh, these underlying agricultural and energy-related commodities going up. We are with Edward Morse of Citigroup. Michael McKee, you had a follow-on question for Dr. Morse. I had a follow-on question. He said that you know, things that affect inflation the most are food and fuel. We talked about fuel. Let me ask about food, and I said I'm going to do my Tim Kaine impression and throw in Spanish into my question here. La Nina, after El Nino last year, La Nina is forecast to come back this year. What is that going to do, if anything, to the production of agricultural products around the world? Well, it's already doing something because the impact has been in Latin America. We're seeing very poor crops coming out of Argentina and Brazil in particular. So actually, uh, just to uh, go back to the point we were talking about earlier, does the value of the dollar, the relative value of the dollar, have an impact on commodities? People are saying today, yes, a lot of the oil fall is a result of uh, dollar strength. Uh, on the other hand, while oil is down, all of the grains are up. Corn is up. Wheat is up. Beans are up. Uh, and I'd say that difference is really the Spanish effect. It's the La Nina El Nino effect uh, coming home to roost. Uh, fortunately, last year crop yields were pretty 
good, so the inventory is there. It'll be a drag on whatever happens this year as a result of weather conditions. Uh, how's it going to affect the United States, or do we know yet? Uh, I think we're going to see exports up because uh, uh, the impediment last year was competition from other countries. Wheat exports were down. They were challenged. Uh, but we were looking, because of the supply availability in other uh, producing countries, we're seeing uh, exports likely to surge. Soybeans are up, and corn will be very strong. Edward Morris, uh, a couple times in your generous time with us this morning, you have circled back to the dynamics of Saudi Arabia. Give us their desperation on the fiscal side. We all know of their wealth and their buried wealth, but they have a nation to run, and they have a foreign policy. They have a huge military component. Can they do it at $40 a barrel? They can do it for a while, and the while uh, has a uh, an endpoint on it because their uh, their cash reserves have been drawn down at an alarming rate. Uh, they're still phenomenally large. Their cushion is larger than that of any uh, other oil uh, exporting country, right. especially Russia. So they can go on for a while. They have a debt to uh, issue and to rely on to give them more breathing room. Uh, but I think uh, if we have a $40 oil world in 2018 or 2019, uh, they're going to have to think of a change in policy. Do they have the same dynamics fiscally that we do? We have a CBO, CBO rather. We have transparency and such. I mean, to the younger generation of royalty there, this is all brand new, isn't it? They've, they've basically, in their life, never confronted this. Is that right? Uh, they've never confronted a world in which they had to pay any kind of tax, even a mild value-added tax. They've never yeah. had to pay for electricity. They've never had to pay for water. All that has been changing. So in the last year, uh, they saw price liberalization on gasoline and diesel. No big protests in the street. Uh, last mm -hmm. winter, they had uh, electricity prices go up. No big protests in the street. They had water prices go up. And yes, that was that was a, uh, a massive problem for them. So uh, they're testing what they can do on the fiscal yeah. side. But and it will be more transparent, but they're not there yet. Do we see anything in um, the overall commodity space, uh, and probably what we want to talk about maybe is industrial commodities, that tells you anything about, at this point, what the forecast is for global growth? We have a lot of people saying that the, the prospect, the economists are saying the prospects are better. But uh, do you see that on the ground uh, in, the, in the kind of things that people need in, in, in a better economy? Well, you do see it on the ground uh, in China in particular, where imports of industrial metals have been surprisingly strong. Uh, you see on the import side, uh, structurally, uh, the imports are strong. Copper imports of refined copper have gone up. Uh, raw ore uh, imports have not gone up. Uh, they're in an environment in which they, they need to use those industrial metals. Part of the complexity of the situation, though, is that China itself is going through the, an underlying adjustment. Uh, recently, they actually did move to shut in 20% of their coal production. And surprisingly, thermal coal imports shot up and thermal coal prices along with them. So there are a lot of dynamics at work. The industrial demand for the industrial metals in uh, in the advanced economies is, is very weak, uh, but it remains robust enough. Uh, it's really going to be a supply issue at the end. Uh, unlike iron ore and coal, where high prices unearthed a lot of cheap raw material, uh, unlike oil, where high prices triggered 
high-priced oil and gas, but a revolution took place technologically when it comes to copper and zinc and, uh, and the other industrial metals. We had more supply. It was high cost. To the degree costs have gone down, it's because uh, the currencies of Brazil and Peru mm -hmm. and copper have gone down, but the costs of incremental supply is really there. So once we get that inventory adjustment on the industrial metals, we certainly think that those costs, those prices are going to go up at a higher level than inflation. Inflation is not something yeah. we worry about now, but we might by then. Edward Morse, thank you so much. Very, very valuable. He, of course, uh, is with Citigroup. And, uh, I, I, commodity research barely describes his uh, abilities in the hydrocarbon uh, world. Rich Clarida is one of those guests that we have on. You don't even have to introduce him because he's got, he, he does so many things and he's so well known, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> just, to, just to touch base. I mean, he's a managing director at PIPCO. He's uh, a professor of economics at Columbia. He's the former uh, chief economist at the Treasury Department on um, I've only gotten through the first line of your uh, business okay. card, right? You, you got and a lot. frequent Bloomberg guest. And, I'm always happy to do it. And as you were mentioning, frequent flyer. Yeah. Uh, which just poses a question in my mind. Um, you, you've been traveling around the world this summer so far. Yeah. What are you finding, uh, you know, in terms of the global economy? Is it the doom and gloom uh, of one camp, or is it the sun is coming, peeking over the horizon of the other? You know, I, I actually, I'm going to sound boring, but it's very much uh, a muddle through ho-hum global economy. The baseline view, uh, both that, that I have and I think others that I meet with have, is we just keep going on at 2 or 3% uh, growth. It's not exciting. It's actually sort of boring. There's no breakout to the upside, but knock on wood, so far we've avoided uh, a downturn. But that's only been because we've got totally unprecedented, unconventional monetary policy, QE, zero rates, and negative rates. So increasingly, even though it appears stable, the global economy looks more and more in Secure. The other thing I found out uh, uh, is there's a lot of interest in the U.S. election. Every place I went when I wanted to talk Fed and GDP, the questions were about the U.S. presidential race, both before and after Brexit. So that's obviously going to continue to be on the minds of a lot of folks. What did you tell them? Well, I said, obviously, uh, you know, this is sort of an unprecedented situation that we're in uh, right now um, and that in the U.S., you know, the polls can move uh, up and down. But stay tuned. Obviously, all the predictions this far have turned out to be uh, uh, off the mark. So I tell them to stay tuned. <laughs> uh when you get on the plane to go to the next stop and you, they hand you the pajamas and you lay down and uh, put, put your seat back all the way down and start to go to sleep, what keeps you from falling asleep? What's the biggest worry that you have as, as you've traveled around the world and, and, and get a better picture of what's going on? You know, I think there, there are two things, Mike. I think, I think the first is, is that th we're now entering the eighth year of the global uh, uh, expansion. I know it doesn't seem like it, but, but the global economy, it's been eight years since the dark days of the financial uh, crisis. Uh, uh, and as a result, this global expansion is a little bit long in the tooth. Um, and at some point, I'm not saying I know when, but at some point, 
we're going to have another global downturn. Uh, and if you think about that, there aren't a lot of options available in terms of countercyclical policy in most countries. Not a lot of fiscal room to maneuver uh, outside of the U.S. and Germany and maybe China. Uh, I'm in the camp that thinks that we're in very much in the realm of diminishing returns to unconventional uh, monetary policy. Uh, and so in the next downturn, we're not going to have a lot of policy tools available. I think the other concern that I have is, you know, there's an old saying, which I probably used on your show, you know, generals are very good at fighting the last war. So I'm very confident that in the next downturn, uh, the financial sector will not be hit with the crisis that we saw in 07 and 08. But that doesn't mean that there isn't some other vulnerability They're very system inventive. that we've They'll come up out. with a new yeah, crisis. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those well, are the two, I think. This weekend, we tried to inform offspring of another time and place. And I had the great honor a number of years ago of interviewing Mr. Hickam of October Sky. Oh, yeah. And there was a magic of doing ballistic Newtonian mechanics. Great film, by the way. And trying to figure out where an itty-bitty rocket moving very quickly went. Yeah, I've got it. This just gives me a, a, an interesting angle here to, to yeah. talk to you about. We, we, we're hearing the, the convention last night, uh, the various speakers, all, all variation on a theme, that America's best days are not behind it. You teach. You have the kids in your yeah. classroom. You also see all of the things that have gone wrong, particularly since the financial crisis and the whole idea of income inequality and, uh, and all that. Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Is the uh, October sky America still there? Uh, have we lost something? Well, I think I'm, I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. I think that uh, the challenge right now is that globalization increases the size of the pie but it also shifts the distribution of income. And I'm a macroeconomist, and throughout most of my career, macroeconomists uh, ignore the income distribution, in part because it was relatively uh, stable, and it was easier to think of the world by looking at aggregate GDP. It, it, wasn't, I, it, it was incomes went up, but we didn't yeah, care how it was distributed. Well, or, or we thought that it would be evenly distributed, and increasingly, not just in the U.S., but uh, in, in, in Europe, certainly, uh, and in Asia, what we observe is that globalization's increased opportunities and the size of the global pie in the aggregate, but it's also had big impacts on the distribution of income. And I think that what is going on now, whether or not you're talking about political polarization or Occupy Wall Street or Brexit or Beppe Grillo or all the other dynamics that we can think about, what they all share in common is that there are more losers to globalization uh, that are recognizing that they are and can be a political force. And so I am cautiously optimistic, but I think the challenge for policymakers uh, is in some ways more complex because they just can't focus on growing GDP and growing the pie as they did in the past. Uh, uh, the policymakers that you know up to it? I think some of them are. I think some of them aren't. I think I think that um, I think institutions are being challenged uh, now, and I think we'll learn something about which institutions are robust and, and which institutions uh, are less robust. But but yeah, if you think about the amazing innovations that we see and inventiveness, I'm not a pessimist. So you have this view: you know, everything that's been invented has been invented. I'm not in that. I'm not in that camp. But I do think, in some ways, the the political and economic challenges. Uh, in terms of being inclusive, I think are much more front and center than for many decades uh, they have been. Yeah, but Claire de Gertler, 
Yeah. And the other mathiness, I think of October Sky, where they lose a rocket in the woods, and then they go out there, and it's not there based on their math. And then one of the kids goes, oh, yeah, but what about the wind? Guys like you yeah. have to worry about the wind. The yeah. Bank of Japan will worry about the wind. Yeah. Yesterday, Chair Yellen had to worry about uh, the wind. Critically, Richard Clarida, do the models work, or are you guys flying blind? You just don't want to admit it in your esteemed mathiness. Well, Tom, you and I, and Mike, we've discussed this. I, I view macro models as a starting point, but not a destination. And to the extent that macroeconomists are rethinking the value of models, it's to be more humble about that dichotomy, about the starting point for thinking about an issue as opposed to the destination. You mentioned my work with Mark Gertland and Jordy Galley. That was essentially a, a starting point, a simple three-equation model. Right. Everybody at the Bank of Japan read Clarida. Every single person. Well, thank you. Is it still within their thinking before this important meeting that we see tomorrow? I think I think that work and others is where central bankers start. But I think the difference between now and 10 years ago is we recognize it's just a starting point. It's not the end of the analysis. So as you analyze uh, where we are and the policymakers and the issues out there, what would be your prescription. If you were writing a briefing paper for the next president, what would be your prescription for what they should come into office trying to do? Wow, boy. <laughs> uh, talk about uh, tip of the tongue. I have definitely not done a lot of thinking uh, on this. Well, what's the, uh, I mean, But I, I guess I'll give you view. three points. Yeah. I will give you three. I, I think that I would have a serious desire to be honest with folks about medium and longer term things that we that we can do. I think the political system really drives uh, folks into thinking about what's going to work for the next election companies, what's going to be good for the next quarterly earnings cycle. And so there's a lot of glib talk about let's do infrastructure. There's, there's a lot of glib talk about you know, global trade or whatever. But the, the deliverable benefits of these are oftentimes five and 10 years down uh, the road. And I think we underinvest both in the U.S. and abroad in things that we could do because the payoffs are are down the road. So I think that, that, would, that would be the first thing. I think the next thing that I would do is I would recognize both in the U.S. and globally uh, that central banks have been carrying too much of the burden. And I think I would, I would think carefully and try to use my powers of persuasion to reorient thinking about policy away from central banks towards uh, other, other policies. And then thirdly, I think, as I mentioned in response to your earlier question, I would respect uh, and not ignore uh, the political polarization and potency of that because of the concerns about uh, the winners and losers uh, from globalization. And I would not try to avoid it or assume it away, but I would try to con confront it with those other two policies. When you look at where we are, it all comes back to a search for growth. Yeah. And, and we're, Mike, we're, I can't believe this. We're coming up again on the anniversary of August 2007. Yeah. Uh, BMP Paribas. Well, again. that was after that, actually. It was when LIBOR went out and Treasury went. Three-month TBO went four standard deviations. But but I, I think of Ned Phelps' speech to Bank of International Settlements on the search for dynamism, yeah. which is maybe not a Clarida word. That's a Phelpsian kind of— One of my know, heroes. Big, yeah, well, all of our heroes. Yeah. But I, I treasure a pencil sketch I have from Professor Phelps. But— this dynamism, where is it? I mean, you're traveling the world. You're, you're talking to all the people we talk to and then some. Do we find it? 
do we invent it or, do, or Professor Clarida, do we just wait? Well, one, one of the things that I actually take some comfort in um, is that economists are quite good at looking backwards historically and talking about innovation. Economists actually have a terrible track record at forecasting inflection points in terms of productivity and dynamism. And so the fact that the last 10 years have not been very dynamic tells us nothing about the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. I think there's a tendency to extrapolate the past. And the one area where you can't do that is technology and productivity. And anecdotally, it does seem that there is a lot of innovation and dynamism. It's so far not translated into the numbers that we measure. And I think there may be some measurement issues there. But but I speak to folks who are actually quite optimistic about uh, about the future, even though the last 10 years have not really had that that payoff. So I would I would definitely be in the uh, in the glasses half full camp there, acknowledging that for a variety of reasons, we've had a, a pretty yeah. bleak 10 years. Mike, I'm there, too. But I wonder about the al allocation of the benefits. Yeah. We got 30 seconds. We haven't even touched on current monetary policy. Let me just <laughs> quickly detail. ask you because everybody wants to know detail. what Clarity thinks. Uh, Fed, raise rates when? They'll raise rates this year. I think that there's a consensus that they've got to go at least once or otherwise they're tar and feathered with a one and done. Uh, that said, uh, I was looking, as you all were, for the statement yesterday to give us some indication that, that they're inclined to move in September, and I really didn't, I really didn't see it. So my best guess would be uh, in December. Yeah. All Professor, right. thank you so much. Richard Clareda with PIMCO okay. and with Columbia uh, University. I do recommend for those of you uh, with a, a moderate level of mathiness, uh, a review of the Clareda classic papers from the 90s. Well, after the bell last night, uh, the folks at Facebook came out with uh, an amazing headline noting that every single person in the world other than me had signed up. No, well, not exactly, but second quarter earnings and sales far surpassed consensus estimates. Uh, the company uh, had a terrific quarter, and right now you look at it, Facebook shares are up 4.2% in the pre-market. So um, you, you had a close uh, yesterday. Well, what do they close at? 123.34. It's 128.53. So we're going on from there. Uh, Brian Weiser is uh, our friend uh, at Pivotal, and he joins us now to talk about what can uh, Mark Zuckerberg do for an encore besides try to sign me up. <laughs> That's a great way to phrase it. You know, I, I think that uh, it, it's almost as if they have this gravitational pull, they and, and Google, frankly. Um, you could call it a black hole if you're anyone not named Facebook or Google because it just sucks all of the energy in of the industry. Um, by my calculations, it's not – it's – more than 100% of the growth of digital advertising outside of China is going to Facebook and Google. And right now they have around 72% of total digital advertising spend in total going through those two companies. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's just going to keep doing what it's doing, and they'll continue to capture share of uh, advertisers' wallets. When do they start getting affected by the law of large numbers? They have been. That's the remarkable thing. I mean, yes, we've seen an acceleration, but the the numbers are already so large. I mean, I calculated that their outperformance relative to consensus expectations, not their growth, just their outperformance relative to expectations, was almost as large as Twitter's entire quarter, which is just stunning. That's the number four player yeah. in the industry. Mm -hmm. 
And um, no, I mean, it, it, the, the, these are the laws of large numbers. And, and the law of large numbers with Facebook is the larger you get, the larger you get. Brian, you have been wonderful over the years of pushing back against the convenient and ever-changing zeitgeist. I'm going to call you a media advertising traditionalist. For example, you've said, I'm sorry, people are still watching TV, get over it, etc. And you've done that recently with the, with the interesting changes of guard at Fox. We don't need to get into a discussion of Mr. Ailes and the future of Fox, but what you've really done is say, there's a reason we all watch traditional media. Reaff- reaffirm that. Why is that not going away, even within all of our digital excitement? Well, so much media consumption is just ambient, and it still counts. Now, we can quibble about the relative value of uh, a TV set that's just on, and, and I, I, I hope you guys won't mind. I have a Bloomberg uh, TV on right now. Uh, I'm seeing David Weston's face. I thought you were going to uh, say Alex Steele, and then I would say, yeah, there's a reason. No. <laughs> it's rather than no, Tom or I. Like, the, the fact is that it, that's on, and yeah. it counts, even though I'm – I guess you could say I'm multitasking right now, but that's not atypical for a, a consumer in a given day. And the fact is that if an ad shows up uh, while that's on and I happen to be doing something else, it still has an impression. And there's the debate I have with, with industry practitioners is whether or not that subliminal, let's call it, yeah. uh, uh, ad interaction has as much value as one which is much more active and more engaged. And it's not actually a clear answer, by the way. Well, I, different I, points of view. I go with the idea it's not a clear answer. Here's what I see at home. I watch Major League Baseball on Apple TV, and there's silence between innings. Are you afraid of that silence? And more critically, is Sir Martin Sorrell afraid of that silence? Well, but you also have to remember that uh, from an advertiser's perspective, it's all about the least bad alternatives, right? So it's my Churchillism of television is the worst form of advertising, except for all those others which have been tried. As long as you're a brand uh, advertiser that cares about marketing the differences of your brand attributes, right? If that's true, nothing compares to television. The line of, when was the last time a banner ad made you cry? And I think you could argue that increasingly the ad units that you might see in a Facebook or another digital environment become increasingly powerful. But but it's not the same thing at all. We still have Agreed. so much time that we spend watching traditional TV. Yeah, but I'm watching I'm watching the same product with no ads. I'm paying a fee for it. I get that. But are are you worried about silences on Apple TV because I'm not watching ads there? It's so small right now. I mean, frankly, this is why the ANA, the trade group for marketers, I think is against the FCC's uh, current set-top box rules, which is to say if you have independent developers, more independent developers of set-top boxes, uh, introducing different set-top boxes into the ecosystem, is it possible that you have much more in the way of um, effectively ad blocking technologies in, in traditional TV. I think that's, that's sort of the slippery slope that I think there's some fear about, but that seems like a long way away. And we also have to remember that, again, most people consume traditional media more or less the same way that they always have. Interestingly, from Nielsen's perspective, Nielsen, of course, which tracks all the data, um, if you talk to their head research people, what they're saying is that, yes, they see the declines in viewing, but what they see is that people spend fewer sessions watching. They're still watching as long when they watch TV, 
right? And so the reality is that most people still have these extensive sessions where the TV's on and it's a traditional set. There's just fewer days where they're doing it. So you get to more technologies where there's um, uh, no ads. I mean, yes, that, that does impact the ecosystem. Yeah. Does it impact it dramatically? I'm <clears> skeptical <throat> well, that it will anytime soon. Just gazing through the New York Times earnings release, it's not something that Brian Weezer uh, looks at with pivotal research. But Brian, when I look at advertising revenue dynamics for traditional print, like the New York Times, one of the girl magazines came across a transom at the home yesterday, and my word, it's thin, I guess before the September extravaganza. Where is print in five years? Sell me that it will be there. Uh, I wouldn't sell you that it will in every place around the country. Um, I think that uh, what happens is you just see less and less of it. So a city with three or four daily newspapers like New York City maybe goes down to two. Um, A city that has one goes down to, um, you know, three days a week. Now, interestingly, it it does seem to be the case that a lot of the community uh, titles and uh, in many instances, very real niche titles too can you know can find a, a an existence, if you will. Um, but in general, the newspaper business, as everyone's known it, is is it's not no more. It's just going to continue to shrink. Yeah. Mike, you wanted to go cultural, global, and cultural. Well, actually, it did. I, I we were talking Facebook, and then I was remembering that we talked to you last week on the the Roger Ailes story. You were in France, and it occurred to me. Where's the French Facebook or where's the the German uh, Twitter or, you know, why are these things all come out of the United States or copied by the Chinese? Um, You don't see these kind of things developing elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've certainly paid close attention to this for on a couple of different levels for, for a long time. One thing that's interesting is that, um, you know, in the United States, if you look to 10 years ago, the dominant players in digital ad- – like pre-Facebook, the dominant players in digital advertising would have been Yahoo, AOL, MSN, which incidentally all sit now under Verizon in terms of display and inventory. But, um, but you had uh, uh, almost an independent sector. But if you were to look at in Germany, you'd see it was, um, you know, Axel Springer-owned titles. If you looked in Australia, it was, uh, frankly, News Corp, or it was um, the o- dominant owners of print – were the dominant owners of digital properties in those countries. And that has to have had some uh, crowding out effect on the one hand in terms of limiting the potential for uh, a company to start in a a different market. Um, And then at the other end, that that gave it a lot of room, I think, for for, uh, uh, um, Facebook to uh, build its scale up and a lot of American players to build their scale up. And then, of course, there is the fact that you could attract talent to the United States. Um, Immigration policies undoubtedly and ambiguously help um, in that regard. And vibrant capital markets too. So I think it all just played together to help the U.S. out. But can can we ever think that we're going to see something from these other countries, or is there something special about the United States? That's, I don't want to no, say a democratic convention will. here, but you know, randomly I think you will. But I mean, and I think right now there's certainly niche players that have evolved. Uh, you look in France, Criteo, certainly, and I think there's a number of other um, smaller uh, uh, players. Um, you know, I mean, Germany has SAP that's not 
exactly advertising, but they're also, you know, they, they have started introduced some ad products into uh, what they're doing. So I think that it can happen. But as I said, if, if the circumstances that allowed Facebook uh, and Google to dominate were just that, you know, the newspaper companies here were so weak, relatively speaking, in the early days of digital, whereas in other countries they were strong, and that gave the room for these guys to build up. I mean, the circumstances can change and, and someone else can emerge from a different market, certainly. What is your single best buy right now? Um, well, you know, I mean, I guess it, a lot of it depends on on, uh, on your risk tolerance right now. I mean, Discovery certainly seems to have uh, a lot of value among the TV names. Um, I think when we look at, uh, at digital, um, you know, Facebook probably uh, still has more room to run, and so there's a lot of reasons to be positive there. I would say that uh, Salesforce.com uh, probably has the highest uh, um, price target relative to um, where it's trading. And I think that's a really important point to call out, though. I think Again, far too often we, we silo how we think about the world, right? Like analysts who cover Facebook and Google will focus more on, say, Amazon, right? Because that's how institutional investor bucketed everybody mm-hmm. once upon a time. And I don't cover Amazon. It's a wonderful company. It's interesting. It's relevant in many ways. But it's, it's ultimately retail and technology and a lot of other things. But if you're looking at the future mm-hmm. of marketing and the end market of how marketers are allocating resources, you have to understand agencies, you have to understand the TV ecosystem, and you have to understand marketing technology. Because there, it's marketing spending is 5x the size of advertising. And very little of it's been automated so far. So when you look yeah. at what um, Salesforce and Adobe and Oracle and SAP and others are doing, it's right. really important to pay attention. So from Lots of upside there. Where you're sitting, or when you're sitting on the Gulfstream next to Sir Martin Sorrell, what, what to the big ad, ad agencies, how do they adapt and adjust? What is the business plan that you see strategically from WPP to adapt to the Brian Weezer world? They are doing it. I mean, frankly, uh, WPP and Publicis um, are probably doing more to adapt than most companies, I think. Uh, I mean, I think Google as well is also adapting in that they're pushing hard down this marketing technology path as well. Um, very few people pay attention to the competitive dynamic between Google and Adobe, but it's real, and it's a, it's a pretty important deal. But on the agency side, um, you look at the investments that the Publicis buying Sapient was a really important deal. It was massively, it was over, they overpaid by far. And they bought a lot of businesses that have nothing to do with their core business. But the thrust of the acquisition was rooted in reality that marketing technology consulting services are a much broader uh, skill set than what agencies have historically done. It reflects where marketers are going. WTP has also been investing, I would say, much more prudently in the same space. They, there's a company called Globant, which is the Argentine Accenture. They have a 20% uh, piece of that. Um, they certainly bought a lot of smaller entities, Acceleration. Uh, they reinvented right. some of their older agencies like Wonderman. And so I think they're going down the right path, certainly. Yeah, it sounds like intellectual capital is the key asset. Brian Weezer, thank you so much with Pivotal, uh, particularly early on there on Facebook as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.